Hello and welcome to the Publicly Challenged Podcast. I'm your host, Luke Oswald, and I hope you join me on my quest for knowledge to become a better public land hunter, angler, and forager. Stick with this and who knows, maybe we will learn something together. Hey folks, welcome back to the Publicly Challenged podcast. I am here and I am sitting talking to Clay Bowers, our co-host and host, whatever you want to call it. I don't even know how we word this. And George Barnett. George, could you please introduce yourself for everybody listening? Yeah, my name is George Barnett. I live in Louisville, Kentucky, and I'm a foraging and outdoor uh, instructor. You're way more than that. Yeah. What else are you? Uh, I'm a dad uh, um, and a a student of the woods. Uh, I don't like to really uh, make a crazy list of accolades. I like to kind of like to distill it down to the most important things. So, you know, I think it's one of the coolest things about you is that you used to be a skateboarder. And I used to be a rollerblader, and we've both been to the Louisville Skate Park. You, I'm imagining, like, uh, far more than I have. But um, yeah. I've been down there a couple times, yeah. Did you guys clash? That was one of the Maybe coolest rumble? things that, <laughs> yeah, that was one of the coolest things that, um, when I first kind of got to know you and realized about you, I was like, that's pretty cool. And yeah, I, I grew up going down there, so it, it opened up, uh, when I say in 2001, when mm-hmm. I was, like, just beginning, and mm-hmm. uh in some ways you could kind of say it's, you know, it, it's raised a whole era of kids. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, uh, we don't go there very often anymore. It's gotten pretty, pretty rough down there, downtown Louisville. So. Oh, wow. <laughs> Clay would um, have been almost, or maybe a senior in high school at that point when it opened. Think about that. Oh yeah. 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 when i was there there was uh we pulled up we pulled up late in the night when and this was like in the middle of the summer and there's a whole group of us uh fruit booters and uh we get up we get out and um there's like people on bikes doing like crazy backflips and all kinds of stuff and i was like whoa like yeah you know the the skateboarding like the whole extreme sports world there's like hierarchies to what each individual thinks that their discipline, you know, mm-hmm. falls in. And of course, at that time, if I would have saw you as a high schooler, I would, mm-hmm. I would have definitely been going into middle school, maybe even elementary school at the time, but mm-hmm. uh, I would have still somehow convinced myself that I was cooler than you because I was a mm-hmm. skateboarder. Well, yeah. naturally but you it's probably a- were. And Clay's favorite movie <laughs> at the time was probably Brink. <laughs> From <laughs> and you know what I'm I talking about Brink. too. <laughs> I love Brink. Yeah. The thing, the thing that I've learned though is that really, no matter what you're doing um, down there, they're all just toys, and they're all just mm. you know their own fun thing. You know, because like when my oldest son Levi, like he, I got him into skating, kinda. I didn't mm-hmm. like it was like no pressure. It was like here's a board, and then he got a scooter, and that's all he ever takes to any place now. Mm-hmm. And now I'm like on his scooter you know, taking it from them and doing other things. And so I've learned that really this, it's just having fun what you're actually doing. You know, it doesn't matter what it is. So I almost yeah. ate pavement the other day on my son's scooter. So <laughs> yeah. My daughters both had one and we took them to a parking lot that was empty and we were riding them racing around and there was a playground there and stuff. 
And uh, I took my son's scooter, so the handlebars were naturally super short because he's the youngest. And the front wheel, I'm racing my kids, and I'm, like, passing them up. And all of a sudden, I feel the wheel, front wheel start turning. And it's, like, almost about to go sideways, and I just had to bail and jumped, and I'm running just so I won't eat pavement, and the scooter's way behind me. Oh, it's terrible. <laughs> I'm like, I'm too old for this. Yeah, it's crazy, um, you know, doing something like skateboarding, and I would imagine rollerblading as well, but, like, some of the discipline kind of can – transfer over into different things because like even with like a scooter like I don't ever really spend any serious amount of time on it but like when I'm on it there's still a lot of like uh familiar like mobility that I can mm. have on a skateboard and so it translates over kind of in a, in a way kind of like how you know I would imagine if clay I don't know how when the last time that you rollerbladed um was but I would imagine that if you got onto a scooter, you could probably still have like the instinctual moment, like, uh, like movement of like a back 360, mm. you know? Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> you know, what's funny, George is, um, so a lot of people don't know this, but my dad used to own a skate park. So, um, wow. it, uh, so I, uh, I actually used to be able to go around a whole skate park and drop in on the, the half pipe and everything on a scooter just because I was like, <laughs> I, I would like, I would like joke around on a scooter. And I'm talking, this is like back when scooters were like really lame and everybody thought that people who did scooters were, you know, the worst, I won't say the word everybody used, but you can't use that word. No, it's been, uh, no. It's, it's been canceled. Yeah, canceled. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I, I used to skate the, uh, or uh, scooter, I should say, the half pipe <laughs> with, with a scooter. Um, I love that. That's got, that's awesome. So yeah. did your scooter yeah. have like a handbrake on it and it was like actual like pneumatic tires or was it like the rollerblade wheel scooters? Rollerblade wheel scooter. Really? Yeah. I didn't even think they had those back then, Clay. Yeah. Yeah. I did. <laughs> Yeah, back in the back in the day. Back um, in the day. But but anyway, um, so <laughs> do you think that that has anything to do? You know, because like both me and you, George, have that background in the extreme sports. And then I don't know about you, but like I, I feel like I got injured so much, and my body's all achy now because like uh, I did that for so long that um, to me, foraging and being out in the woods and walking peacefully and not doing anything aggressive actually seems like such a nice contrast that has happened you know I don't know if you feel that way no yeah I've definitely um both subconsciously and consciously like kind of made those parallels to be like what are some things and you know uh like with skating I was never like a big stair or like rail skater I was always more into like the technical like ledge mm. skating and stuff like that. And I, I've definitely had those thoughts before. Um, but I always find and come down to the interesting parallel that I think is the funniest is that both of them are like largely like looked down upon today and illegal in a lot of places. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that's been that's been the biggest similarity between the two things. Um, but also to your point, um, yeah, you know, being of an older age and being able to do a, a passive thing that consumes your mind in the in the very similar way for me anyway mm -hmm. that skateboarding once did i mean it was my whole you know world at at that particular time in my youth and now there's just so much more complexities with you know parenthood and making a living and but forging mm -hmm. is kind of the uh the seals around all of those other wise very important parts of your life yeah so um 
you, um, before we actually started recording, you were telling us a story about this persimmon tree down the road. And uh, I, I want to hear, I said, I said, stop, you know, we, we got to hear about this tree uh, while we're recording. So um, currently right now, what's the temp outside where you're at? Well, there is a little bit of a, of a warm spell that's showed up in the past 48 hours. Um, mm -hmm. But for about two, going on three weeks now, it's been in the high 20s, low 30s, uh, half the day, and maybe mm -hmm. getting up into the uh, high 30s into the low 40s at the hottest point in the day. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, tomorrow's December 1st. And so... Yeah, this tree is, it's on my commute where I go to pick up uh, and drop off my son to school. Mm -hmm. And um, I've just been watching it um, since October when the fruits were just starting to really ripen. And now every leaf of it uh, from the tree is gone and it's still, you know, carrying anywhere from, from, I would say realistically 80 to 100 plus pounds of fruit. I mean, every single limb is still weighing down with clusters of three to four persimmons on each branch so wow so okay i'm i'm a novice here at persimmons because i don't have them in my area are are those those are all still viable fruits that are going to taste good and everything i mean even with the fluctuations in the weather is that something that you're still going to pick and enjoy yeah so the viability i mean in the sense of uh like taste that kind of comes to the territory that not all persimmons are created equal you know, so even in the, you know, even when they first start to ripen, you're going to have some that are just not that good because they, they tend to be higher in tannins, the, the flesh, and, and maybe it's the, it's that the actual size of the fruit is smaller. And so you get more flesh when you go to consume the pulp, which mm. might have that, those tannins on there to make it more astringent and bitter. Um, so my approach to gathering persimmons is kind of being selective on trying to find larger fruit um, mm. in general, but it, when that might not be the case or possible, uh, to just experiment and try a fruit or two from each tree and then just stick with the trees that do provide the fruit that you, you know, can really just pop in your mouth. Because I don't really like the process of having to, you know, remove the really thin, thin, thin skin around it. I like being able just to put the whole fruit in my mouth and then spit the seeds out. Mm -hmm. um, so, so for those particular persimmons on that tree, uh, it's very nice because it was, it's, it's accessible by a, a, a public sidewalk and you can actually pull your car off of the road and go walk up to it, but it's on like a pretty otherwise busy, you know, street. And um, we gathered some last week and uh, right before Thanksgiving and um, they were all still, you know, perfect as far as their flavor profile goes. The only uh, thing about them is at this point, they're a little bit more shriveled uh, because they have been on the tree for some time and, and it is, it's been relatively dry here for a, a month now. But um, they're still, they're still totally great. And in that particular tree, you can just pop that entire thing uh, in your mouth, spit the seeds out. And because they're still on the tree, uh, you just have to remove the calyx on the top, uh, which just, you know, comes right off with a twist. So they're great. So are you going to wait for them to fall or pick them then? Yeah. And, you know, some persimmons, they will hold on to them. Uh, 
I'm not going to say indefinitely, but they can really hold on. Some persimmons you'll come across and this tree, I believe, would fit that bill where they'll hold on to the fruit uh, until probably uh, the end of the year, if not into January, where maybe the, the ice weighs the branches down or particular winds. They'll eventually fall, of course, but persimmons, you know, they start to drop on the ground here. Um, maybe the last week of September, um, mm -hmm. maybe even mid-September some years, depending on how much moisture we have. But um, they start to drop here, you know, in right around, you know, a week or so after fall has begun. And so uh, for them to be on trees this late, it's not uncommon, but you don't see them, you know, be full still. And sometimes that can actually be a negative indicator. It can mean that maybe that the fruit didn't properly ripen maybe because of um, some of the caterpillars that feed on persimmon leaves. It can basically just stop the production of the fruit to develop fully and ripen because the leaves weren't, you know, they were being, you know, preyed upon. And then the actual fruit did, just didn't actually have the energy to create and actually fully develop those fruits. And so I've noticed that as well. And there's one also not very far from me that does that regularly where it'll hold on to some fruit but they were always bad to begin with they just never really had good fruit and they always have really bad tank caterpillars so wow um just out of curiosity what is the latest that you've ever seen a persimmon on a tree well I, i'll probably have a better answer in about a month whenever this tree probably still has fruit on it <laughs> <laughs> but i would say you know maybe uh, around Christmas, so right at the end of the year. Um, mm. But when I, when I would come across that, it would maybe be, you know, one or two fruit that were still hanging up some, somehow onto a, you know, a tree and just never fell. Um, you know, having said that, I typically go about my foraging uh, for persimmons um, throughout, you know, all of October. Uh, so early October is when I'll start to actually scout the, the trees that I really, really like, mm -hmm. uh, that I'm kind of grown familiar with. Um, <clears throat> and then I just gather, um, basically I like, I like cycle throughout the six or seven different trees that I frequent persimmon trees. And, um, you know, some years I'll gather a lot more, uh, than other years. This year was a really good year. Um, just as far as my availability to get to those trees, a lot of them are within, uh, all of them, in fact, are within a 20 minute drive from my home. And so um, I probably got some somewhere around like 10 or 15 gallons of persimmon fruit this year, you know, but last year oh. I might have, I think I might have only gotten like four gallons. Holy cow. So, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So it just, you know, it's, it's, but have it, you know, also again, that, that just comes down to availability, you know, how many five gallon buckets on hand do you have kind of thing? Cause you could really clean up here. I mean, if you wanted to, gather hundreds of gallons you could um i'm also at the mercy of having a really small home and you know mm. two kids and, and a wife so uh space you know sometimes they want some fridge space themselves for other <laughs> foods so i'm greedy i had to be fair so could you you yeah. can dry the persimmons and use them like later right i mean will they yeah, still so retain yeah we do yeah, we do that. So we dehydrate them um, and they can kind of give you, you know, the, a similar experience to like a, a, a date when they're dried like that. 
Um, and, and I do love them that way. Um, but my favorite way to um, preserve them is just to uh, pulp them. So we just put them you know, into a colander and push them through. And then we take all that pulp and we just freeze it in you know, gallon uh, Ziploc bags. And then we've even experimented like last year um, with making fruit leather. It's really kind of a sticky mess because persimmon, uh, when you handle it and the fruit actually, you know, is out in, in the air for a while, as far as like being like pulped and everything, it becomes really sticky, almost kind of like if you were handling like wet flour. And if you were just to like leave it on your hands, it gets really, really sticky. Uh, it even it's really difficult to clean off utensils and stuff once you're done pulping them because of how sticky it becomes whenever it dries so we did the fruit leather i think i'll probably do it again a different way but we used a lot of parchment paper and it was really really good but a mess mm. yeah um that reminded me though a few minutes ago what you were talking about with the um different persimmons having different flavors um i was up in Ashland, Wisconsin this uh, summer, right before and after ricing season, I always pick um, wild plums. And wild plums vary so much like that, you know, I've noticed you, you can have some that are teeny and kind of bitter. And then you find other ones that are like really big and sweet. And um, this year, actually, a tip from Sam Thayer that I took was, he said, find those ones that taste really good and then take uh, root suckers off of those ones. And so I brought home a whole bunch of root suckers off of these um, really good tasting plums. So they're in my backyard right now and I'm fingers crossed the cottontail is not going to eat them during the winter. Yeah, no, I hope that I hope that is the case. And and that's kind of how we operate as well. Like, you know, like so some of the trees that I get exceptional persimmons from, you can tell that the trees are not just like seedlings that happened naturally, oh. but that were that they were planted more intentionally, you know, some type of a cultivar that was planted because of its fruit production. And because of that, you know, um, when possible, especially of course gathering those fruits, uh, we we stratify all the all the seeds and we try to give them out. We we plant them on friends and family's property. Mm. persimmons have a fairly high germination rate as far as stratifying them in the fridge and this you know putting them out they have a fairly high germination rate they don't germinate until here in kentucky until about uh, mid to late june they'll actually start to you know germinate so it's fairly late but what's nice too is you can eat you can put the seeds out on the landscape pretty early so i keep all the um seeds in the fridge until about february and then i'll go out and scatter them about and just put a little bit of mulch over them and come the summer they'll they'll germinate the only thing that you really have to be really careful of and probably not even do at all is try to transplant them shortly after they've germinated i've tried that before just to experiment and it doesn't really work that well for me so so when you keep them in the fridge do you keep them in soil or just the bare seed um what i do is i keep them in just the just the bare seed they have a seed sack around them that i just pierce through with my teeth gently when i'm eating the fruit and it just it completely adheres around the whole seed and so you can just peel it right out pawpaws are the same way mm -hmm. that's what i was going to um, say is that's what yeah. i do with the pawpaws is i bite that seed sack off but i just put them in soil i was kind of afraid like if i left them uh by themselves in yeah. the fridge it might i don't know damage them if it got too cold in the 
door of the fridge or something. Yeah, I mean, if you had a fridge that maybe was, um, that tended to be on the colder side, you might want to be a little bit more cautious, but, um, you know, out, you know, out where all of us live, really, you know, it gets below freezing at times. And so out in, when they're, when they're doing their natural biological process of germinating uh, from seed, uh, they are going to go through extremely cold temperatures as well, just maybe not for an extended period. But um, yeah, I just keep them in a, a Ziploc bag. Um, I just rinse them really well. You don't have to. I know people who literally just take the fruits and uh, they'll either put them in bags just with the rotten fruit around it. I've had a mold makes, doing that. Yeah, so. it makes like a vinegar. It's pretty wild. Um, <laughs> and then I have, you know, people who are really intentional about it and they'll have, you know, for people that I plant uh, on their properties for them, um, they'll actually just want me to take the actual fruit and plant it instead of just the seed. So they'll just want the mm. actual persimmons just to be planted because they're trying to mimic that natural system you know, to a T, which, you know, it works as good as how you would do it with just planting the seed, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've had, I've had many years to do this because I plant um, and stratify seeds every single year and I try to get stuff planted out. Um, but one year I had a whole five gallon bucket of, it was these hybrid butternut black walnuts. And it sounds um, amazing. And I, uh, I could, I couldn't get to them all. They just, they just laid outside all winter. And, uh, the next, uh, spring I come out there and I swear to God, 75% of them were germinating in the bucket. They had yeah. little, like little sprouts coming out of them. Yeah. And, and I was like, there's no soil, anything. They're just all on top of each other in a bucket. And I was like, Oh my God, this is crazy. So did you plant it up? Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Planting frenzy. Yeah. It's, I mean, yeah, as long as you keep the little radical intact, you know, and, and they're not um, like a darker color, because usually when the radicals turn like that darker brown, that means that they basically died. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, we do the same with chestnuts. And, but what we do is we'll, um, we do it with acorns as well and hickory nuts. Um, we do like the, the wet sawdust or the playground sand. Uh, mm-hmm. method where we just kind of layer them in buckets and then bury them i think i got that idea from akiva silver um mm-hmm. but he he that guy grows like you know 20 plus thousand trees a year up in new york and wow. he does a lot of he does a lot of like the burying uh with like you know chicken wire and that kind of stuff and so we've adopted a lot of those methods and they they work <laughs> so when you're saying bury them you're saying bury them for the winter or bury them permanently yeah, so for for that specific thing, it, it was burying them for the winter. And so taking something like a five-gallon bucket and removing the bottom of it and layering it uh, or lining it rather with a, a hardware cloth um, to, to allow really good drained, uh, draining and then layering it with and the inside with, let's say, a layer of uh, sand or wet sawdust and then seed, whether it be chestnuts, hickory nuts, acorns, and then just repeating that layering all the way to the top. And then taking the lid and then drilling, you know, a dozen or 16 holes in it for, again, for drainage. And then um, you bury that to the level. So the actual opening of the bucket should be on the, on the ground level. Hmm. And then 
putting a nice two to four foot um, layer of natural material on top as an insulator. And so what you're doing is you're, for one, you're, you're giving yourself a lot of space for seed to be stratifying in a really passive way that doesn't require energy like from a refrigerator. It also doesn't take up all the space in your home, uh, you know, because we just have a regular refrigerator where we live. And I mean, you know, if you have 50 to 60 chestnuts you're trying to stratify, that takes up the whole bottom drawer of a regular mm -hmm. refrigerator. So right. also for space, uh, you know, it just depends on your size of goal or project, you know, because, you know, if, if it's just, you know, an experiment, you still want to have a chance. And so I still want to have at least a dozen or so seeds because not all of them are going to germinate probably, you know, but. Yeah. Um, and then what you mentioned too is worth uh, repeating for anybody who's getting into this is that um, if you do live in an area that's got a lot of um, seed predators like squirrels and things, uh, you mentioned putting over a uh, chicken wire or something, right? And I'm yeah, assuming yeah. that's uh, block blocking the consumption of those, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and, and we do that, you know, we, we use deer protection and chicken wire and hardware cloth. Yeah. For, yeah. The, the, the amount of, you know, squirrels and chipmunks, uh, white-tailed deer, raccoon, skunk, we, you know, we just have so much, uh, so much wildlife that, you know, do depend on it, but, you know, which is a whole other, you know, situation where it's like, you know, for as many things as I try to intentionally stratify and then plant out um you know that amount times three is what i end up putting out on the landscape for the wildlife because we're always cracking out black walnuts and hickory nuts and acorns mm -hmm. and whenever there's that refuse i'm constantly shooting it into our backyard <laughs> because mm -hmm. you know if anything it's helping them out and um it's, it makes great compost as well whatever they aren't eating as far as the shells go so yeah um so you you have actually like a background in forestry right yeah yeah i didn't go to school for it um it was fortunately a, a particular industry that i had gotten interested in just kind of personally and i started doing a lot of studying uh into forestry and then volunteered as a backcountry ranger with the forest service down in eastern kentucky in the daniel boone national forest and that kind of opened up the world of like the possibilities here in our state, which there's not really many avenues for mm -hmm. careers. There are some uh, businesses that you can have in forestry here, but they're pretty limited. Um, so yeah, I, I've worked in forestry in and out uh, since 2021. That's super cool. Um, so you said Eastern Kentucky, right? You uh, Did you ever come across elk? Um, I have seen elk, uh, not in that particular area that I uh, was doing my volunteer work in, uh, but that is the same national forest. Uh, so that's more in what's called the Cave Run Lake area of Daniel Boone mm -hmm. National Forest. That's where the elk were introduced, and they have a lottery uh, for elk hunting. And yeah, I put it. Um, I've been. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, I figured that you might have, since I learned that you live closer than I thought, but. Um, yeah, I mean, that's an amazing place to go up and camp. They have an amazing campground system up there and really good hiking. And we're really into fishing and pack rafting. And that's just a really cool place to go up there and do it. Um, and you, there, there's a lot up there. I mean, the population up there is pretty, pretty high. 
uh, but you know, it's not anything like, you know, white-tailed deer or anything, but you can come across them pretty regularly, um, when you're up there hiking and backpacking. Yeah. Plus it's one of the cheapest tags of any elk tag that you apply for. It's, um, I think it's like five bucks or 10 bucks for a non-resident to apply. And then if you draw, yeah. I still think it's only 500, which is Eating better is easy with Factors' delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, which is the one I like, and Keto. Get started today and get after your goals. Discover a wide variety of easy options for the entire day, like breakfast, midday bites, and more. No prep, no mess meals. Factor meals are ready to heat and eat so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. Sign up and save. We've done the math. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash waypointpod50 and use the code waypointpod50 to get 50% off. That's waypointpod50 at factormeals.com slash waypointpod50 to get 50% off. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if we've learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. So when I heard that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, I thought, what's the catch? But after talking to them, it all made sense. There isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores, and pass those sweet savings directly to you. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com waypoint. That's mintmobile.com waypoint. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com waypoint. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. About a third of the price of some of the elk tags these days that you have to uh, apply for. Wow. So, yeah. Well, I take that back. With the license, it's like four or 500, I think, okay. which is pretty cheap compared to a place like Colorado where a non resident, it's like a $200 fee for a license and then a $800 or $900 tag. Now, Pretty the, crazy. Uh, now with Colorado, is it also a lottery system or is that just more of an Col actual, you're, you're paying your way? Colorado is both. So they have over the counter and then they also have a lottery system. And then more and okay. more units are becoming a lottery due to elk population decline and uh, more hunters. So, hmm. yeah. Other states like New Mexico are completely random and you could apply for 10 years and not draw a tag. And mm. still have to buy the license to to uh, do it. In Arizona, you have to buy a license in order to apply. And then you have to build points in Arizona. And some of the units you might need a lifetime's worth of points. So like 50, well, maybe not 50, but coming up pretty close to 50 points in order to even draw. Wow. It's pretty crazy. Unfortunately, my, um, my elk eating is an unknown just because I have alpha gal. And so, Oh uh, man, <laughs> that's, that's one of the things that, um, as much as I would love to go on an elk hunt and I probably actually haven't said that I probably would still try, uh, an elk steak, even if just for the sake of the experience, but I do in fact have alpha gal. Um, and I believe I probably 
got that um, in 2018 when I was down there working with the Forest Service. Um, and it was just because of the amount of ticks that were actually attached to me is mm. why my mind kind of goes into thinking that that might have been the case because just because of the nature of what I do, uh, you know, I get anywhere from 50 to 100 tick bites every summer. Uh, and I get probably triple that in sugar bites. But um, that year, particularly, um, I would just be out in the field for so many days at a time, uh, building trails and main, uh, maintaining trails that when I would get back home and finally shower, I know just because of the size of some of the ticks that I had to remove, um, but they were on me for a good 48 hours. So they were actually um, Lone Star ticks then? Black-legged, um, a <sighs> lot of black-legged ticks, and then some Lone Stars, yeah. Wow. So let's explain for everybody that doesn't know what alpha gal is, which hopefully that can be a lesson to them. But I mean, lone star ticks carry a disease or a back. Is it a bacteria that infects the human or is it an actual yeah, disease? Yeah. So I want to say it's probably, it's considered a disease. Yeah. I want to say. And, and basically it's um, how I'm, how I understand it is, it's the the fat content or the fat that's in the blood of red-blooded animals um, is what you get an allergy to. And that's because the tick had that. And just like with Lyme spread to you via feeding on you and backwashing that, you know, disease into you. And now so, you cannot eat red meat or at least eat yeah. it without getting sick. Yeah. And so, um, you know, that's when I truly feel like I, I probably got it. Um, again, I, I could have gotten it uh, a couple of years after. Um, the reason why it's also kind of gray is because I was vegetarian for about six years. Oh. Um, yeah. <clears throat> so I was vegetarian and that was just more of like a thing where um, I still run, not as much as I'd like to say I do still, but I was running a lot at the time. And uh, whenever I would eat any kind of meat of any kind, I just, it threw my running off pretty substantial. And so I just kind of cut meat out of my diet just to see how it it would do, um, what kind of benefits it would give my body. And I got really thin, like not like sickly thin, but I got down to like 138 pounds. And, uh, but I was eating, you know, otherwise really healthy diet. And I was already foraging and getting a lot of other nutrients that, you wouldn't get from eating a, let's say a 21st century vegan or vegetarian diet, which can really be unhealthy if you're eating a lot of processed foods. But, um, so I was doing that and outside all the time, working outside, running. And it was in 2020, I, I was working, uh, as a horticulturalist at a, um, a local, uh, park here called the Parklands. And on my going away, like my like last day type of gathering, we had a dinner and my boss, who's a great guy, he, uh, he had brought uh, deer jerky and for all of us to try. And so I was kind of like, you know, that just, it just looked and smelled so good and it was so appealing. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, we, where we went to go eat, um, he had ordered some burgoo and burgoo is kind of like a stew with like several meats in it. Um, yep. and, uh, I was like, you know what, I'm going to have the burgoo and I'm going to eat and try some of this 
deer jerky. And so I ate the burgoo. I had the deer jerky, just a single piece. And then about four hours later, so right at the end of my shift, um, my palms started itching and like burning. Mm. Uh, Palms on my hand and feet. And, um, you know, and at the time of year, it was was actually right around this time of year, right at the end of November, 2020. Um, I get home, I take a shower and uh, my body is covered in like welts, like red welts, like rashy type welts all over my torso and my back and my neck. And I'm kind of feeling like how you would feel after you've woken up and are hungover. And it's about, you know, midday the following day into a hangover. That's kind of how I felt. And at this point it was maybe six hours or so. And I was like, what is going on? I couldn't get it. Like I got out of the shower and basically went up to our bedroom. And that's just not me. I'm usually the first one up and the last one uh, in bed. And I was like, this is weird. Something's going on. Um, and then my fiance checked on me and sure enough, I had all these different welts on me and I felt like I was just, you know, burning at the palms. And uh, I told her what I ate and took her a while to believe it. And then she was kind of like, maybe it's something, you know, from you eating meat, what meat did you eat? And I couldn't really give her an answer. Cause it's it kind of like, you know, the thing. <laughs> yeah. Cause you know, and like, it's funny. Cause like, that's one of the things I talk about in foraging classes. Like when it comes to like really any one particular th- wild food that's new to you, but like, I, I discuss it a lot about mushrooms where it's like, you know, if you go and gather one or two, uh, two or three more species, anything more than one species of mushroom at a time and take it home to prepare it, you know, to never prepare them both at the mm. same time together. If it's your first time eating them, cause you might have an adverse reaction to one might not know which one it is so I kind of was you know having to experience that myself but you know in my defense it was with something that I thought was safe to eat (laughs) being meat products but um yeah and so it took about half or it took about uh, a half day so about 12 or so hours to get over that um until I felt myself again and the hives went down Mm -hmm. um and I was kind of a little nervous it was almost kind of like you know seeing a weakness or an illness that you had that that you weren't really sure what it was. Mm. And uh, it was about a three months or so uh, period between wanting to try it again, because once it was kind of, you know, the census was reached at first with like me and uh, Sam, my fiance being like, you know, do I have alpha gal? And she was like, you want to go and get a steak and try to eat it? <laughs> I was like, I don't know if I want to go through that already. <laughs> again. like that was really uncomfortable. Uh, but about three months later, I tried it again and um, it was ground bison. We were making tacos um, and I was making them for the family. And I've been preparing meat every, you know, all the time for my family. And we make, I make them steak and we do, you know, we don't really consume a lot of pork. Um, but we do a lot of chicken and we fish a lot, but we do a lot of steak and bison. And um, I was making bison tacos and I had a single tablespoon of ground bison. meat. And uh, four, four and a half hours later, same exact thing. Uh, hives felt really out of it. Um, and I was basically down for another half day. Um, and that's where I was kind of like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to assume that I have this. And then, um, you know, a couple months later, I went and got, uh, did the testing for it, which is kind of weird because it's, 
not like something that you just walk into a, a hospital. And be like, you know, hey, I have alpha gal, or I think I do, right? Yeah, it was it was really more so like you know doing like four different things, and then them finally getting back to me, saying, yeah, you know, you're you're matching up with this other case that we have of it, you know. So it's kind of like this thing, and and also too, um, you know, from the the blood work and the allergy work that they do that goes into it or whatever. Um, they, they, they can't ever really tell you anything about, you know, it's going to go away or you might have it, you know, this long, obviously there's no way for them to be able to tell you that, but I've done my own research and have found that, you know, some people, you know, have the symptoms from eating meat only for eight or so months and then they're fine. Mm -hmm. Uh, I've seen other instances where it's been, you know, been five years, someone's had it for 20 years. And so it's kind of a really gray area. And so it's unfortunate, um, especially because while I was already really well into foraging and everything at that time, and I discovered that I had it, um, it was also at a time where I was starting to kind of entertain the idea of hunting and to, mm-hmm. and to be able to add that into the foraging aspect. Um, cause we, I've always fished and I love fishing so much. Um, now I have to love it cause that's the only thing I can really go out and eat. But, um, it's a shame. And I hope that one day I can, you know, have some of my brother's deer or what have you, and be able to enjoy it. Maybe if you ever get your lottery for an elk, maybe. Yeah. Come with me by my house. And, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I will. Um, but yeah, you know, I would, I would love to be able to do that. And so now it's kind of like focusing on the things that I can. So, you know, wild Turkey, we, we have an abundance of that here. Um, mm-hmm. you know, the what, other game. Do you get three tags? in in kentucky for turkey yeah um is it i want to say it well there's two seasons and so is it three a year or three per season i think it's three we have spring three years well not it's fall separate i think but i think you're allowed three it's either two or three in the in the spring season which is quite a few birds i mean realistically we have one here Really? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we have so many of them here. Um, When I was working uh, as a forester on uh, based on Fort Fort Knox, we were doing a very massive tree planting project for an area that had been um, logged three years prior. They do a lot of, um, you know, the natural resources department out there, they get really all their revenue from uh, logging, um, you know, jobs. And so, They'll do a lot of different mixed variety hardwoods, but then they'll also just do a bunch of, you know, telephone pole plantings, you know, and uh, we had went in and it was like a dream job for someone like me where uh, we were planting around 27,000 bare, uh, bare root whips of four different species of oak and three species of hickory. So I was just in heaven, like planting mm. this future food forest, but um, it was in the spring, of course. Uh, and every morning that we got out to that area, it was a 32 acre, uh, plot. There was anywhere from 20 to 50 wild turkeys out in this food plot area, uh, every morning. And it was just incredible. I mean, they're so abundant here and they're also a really cool animal just to observe, you know, that's also something I've gotten really into the past like decade is just observing animals. It's like Um, the reintroduction of the turkey is just fascinating that it was yeah. almost completely decimated throughout the entire Midwest and then brought back. 
enough to where it's actually a viable resource to hunt. I mean, that's just amazing. Like I, I, and I've said it many times on the podcast, but multiple times, I mean, throughout, I can't remember anything else like that to where there was a reintroduction of it. Uh, My dad took me, I remember I was like maybe nine years old, maybe 10. And he's like, let's go to a meeting. I think it'll be really cool. You might find it interesting. And it was the proposal for reintroducing the the wild turkey in in back into Illinois, and so wow. they were talking about it. The biologists uh, talked about it, and then like uh, there was board members and stuff that you know talked about the different proposals and plans and how to do it. And then sure enough, um, it was like ten years later, after the initial reintroduction, that I drew my first turkey tag. That's pretty, awesome. Pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. Yeah. I hope that there's more, you know, feats like that in our lifetime, you know, with other species, that would be an amazing thing. Absolutely. Yeah. I would love to see elk farther and out, you know, it's like Michigan's elk herd. You guys, um, you know, in Kentucky, you guys got like 15,000 elk. Well, Michigan keeps their population like penned in basically 200 <laughs> no no not 200 there's i know but you know what i'm there's saying there's 200 moose yeah there's like 2000 elk here but um they're they're not allowed to range out you know so it's like it's it's this whole ridiculous thing um they basically prioritize giving hunters like access to hunting on the outskirts to to stop them from migrating out of this area that they're in so that was my that was going to be my question so as far as you know it is that is that kind of their their way to uh, mitigate them from going outside of that range? Yeah, yep. it's like, yeah, it's like basically like kill all the ones that try to leave. You know. Now, does that is that at, uh, is that a benefit though to those people that are able to hunt? Because is it something where they're having to pay all the same fees and everything to hunt them, or is it more of like here's a deal where maybe it's discounted or you know waived entirely as far as the actual I don't you think, know what I mean? I don't think it's can... discounted. Uh, no, it's still no, no, no. relatively hard to to even draw one of those tags. But I, oh wow, okay. It's Just to appease like yeah. Of hunters. It's yeah, to okay. appease the people that wanted the reintroduction, right? Uh, mm-hmm. So they appease them, but at the same time, it's to appease the insurance companies of all you know vehicle insurance companies and everything else because of the destruction and damage that would happen to all the vehicles and elk collisions if they migrated <clears throat> out towards all the highway systems. Well, and then the, the, farm, the farmers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. You know, just the, the whole thing. Um, but, you know, we, we always think about, uh, like, the reintroduction of the turkey and how it's, like, a great success because it's back in every single state that it once was now. Um, but, like, with the elk, you know, that, that used to be a great plains creature. Correct. You know. How yeah, cool like would it not... be to stalk an elk across the Great Plains, you know, intermingled yeah. with the bison? Yeah. Just yeah, I think about that a lot. You know, I over the last, like, six years or so, I've gotten, you know, still definitely as far as the amount of material that exists out there, I'm still got a lot of work to do. But I've gotten really into the 18th century, you know, mm. that period and, and reading a lot of just journals and collections. Uh, from the frontier and so it you know it's just such a fascinating way outside of just the foraging lens that you know we kind of take on uh, of just being out in a particular ecosystem and thinking about 
what it would have looked like 250, 300 years ago, you know, what animals would have been foraging that particular patch, you know, where you're getting your chanterelles from. And those are just those kind of things I think about like oh. increasingly often. I think know. many outdoorsmen do. I often oh, ponder, yeah. you know, like what if I could be able to just, you know, take and boil this water and get salt and then shoot an elk and preserve it right there where I'm at while I'm still, you know, collecting the rest of my salt for the year. I got a, I got a question about that um, because Kentucky is known for all these salt licks. Right. And yeah. um, I, I just got d- finished um, actually reading the biography of Daniel Boone, Boone. Robert Moore. And uh, no, I can't, I, I actually don't even know who wrote it. I, I, I can't tell you. Okay. Um, it was, this was a couple months ago, but the, um, the salt thing is so interesting to me. So like, can you elaborate on that? What's with the salt in Kentucky? What's with, um, us, at least, like, I grew up with this notion that, like, Native Americans just didn't ever eat salt. No, you know? that's not true. No, they, their, their favorite ways to eat, their favorite ways, you know, to eat deer were with the salt that they would make or maple sugar. Uh-huh. Know, so, um, but yeah, not knowing exactly what autobiography you read on Boone, um, I've read not all of them, but a lot. Um, and one of the really, you know, kind of go-to autobiographies is Robert Moore's and it's just called Boone. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, he, you know, as far as the salt licks go, you know, we have a lot of springs here. We have a lot of, you know, salt licks and that was where the bison would congregate. Um, they would go there for in this, you know, they would, co- they would actually very often find, you know, bison remains, skeletal remains at the salt licks. Um, but yeah, they would, I mean, they would spend one to two months at a time, uh, these, you know, groups of guys, maybe a dozen, two dozen guys going out there for, yeah, the, the production of salt. And so they would collect the water from the spring and boil it down, uh, and, you know, make a lot of salt, many bushels of salt, and then transport that back to their forts or stations, you know, wherever they were at. But, um, yeah, I mean, we we have so many different areas throughout Kentucky uh, are are named, you know, you know, Pope Lick, you know, or mm-hmm. whatever type of lick or salt lick, and so they're all over. Um, you know, unfortunately, as far as the actual um, preservation of all of them or most of them, really, you know, it's not necessarily the case, uh, but. It's a really neat, I feel very fortunate just because of the subject matter that I'm interested in at this point in my life. I feel very fortunate to be in a place where, um, while it's not in the exact uh, hands it was left in, maybe from what you're reading, you can kind of still at least go to those places and imagine it, maybe with what's Mm -hmm. left. And in some instances, way more than others, right? But um, yeah, it's just a really, really neat area. Um, There was a lot of you know, important things that took place in this part of the country, uh, you know, in that period in the 18th century, uh, a lot of terrible things and a lot of, you know, heroic people and a lot of bad people (laughs) were in this area. Um, but you know, I've kind of went on these different collections of information through those, you know, books. And so when it comes to the utilization of particular, you know, plants or tree crops, um, utilizations of plant material. I like to kind of find and extract those from some of those 
frontier journals because you're getting, you know, maybe a little bit of a different taste of what was going on um, at that time by another mindset or by another, you know, perspective. And then also seeing the correlations and how things were transmitted information wise, you know, like a big thing that I took away from a lot of the journals was that when the frontier was taking place and stuff like copper and brass kettles were brought into this area, uh, the trading that took place between that, that type of material, which allowed Native Americans to be able to boil down sap uh, into making syrup and sugar quicker and more uh, efficiently, you know, then that, that kind of trade was through also the education to the settlers and to those people uh, on how to actually do that in the first place. And not just from the maples, of course, but from several tree species. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, it's just it's such a fascinating thing. And I mean, I know that you're really into maple syrup production, right, Clay? Or yep. yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. So there's there's certain you know things that really fascinate me more than others when it comes to particular plants. You know, like some of them really have a hold on me. Like I know, like when I associate, and it's funny because you can associate sometimes your peers with certain mushrooms or plants. And so, like when mm -hmm. I think of you, I think of like chaga. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know it's like that's funny it, it's cool to be able to do that and uh mm -hmm. but yeah so that type of literature you know it of course is going to have its its qualms and it's going to have uh things that in today's world would make people crawl out of their skin to read um <laughs> but for as many of those things as there are um i get a lot out of reading uh, some of the things that took place and some of, um, you know, we live such a privileged life today. Yeah. And if you ever, sometimes if you're ever caught forgetting that, just pick up a book from, you know, the 1800 period, you know, even the 1900, uh, or the, I'm sorry, the 19th century and 18th century. I mean, just pick up a book and read about that. There's a fascinating book, um, that took place up in Michigan from the 18th century called uh, the bark covered house. Have you ever heard of that clay? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's a really neat one as well. Um, I, I tend to stick more in my area as far as the books go, but that one came upon me from a resource and I read it and it was, it was awesome. You know, seems like a lot of the historical stuff. So I, I too have that fascination, you know, with reading about that. And, um, and just like you, I also gravitate towards my area. So, um, I'll read a lot about um, Mackinac Island, you know, the Straits of Mackinac, all that like um, canoe voyaging like that the natives did. And honestly, it does seem like there was like a lot of people coming from Michigan down to Kentucky and vice versa. You know, um, just it, what I kind of think about a lot with that, though, and, and what's mind blowing to me is like that knowledge of the river systems that they had just yeah. like holding in their head you know it's like i'm gonna go you know like you can you can go across michigan you know mm -hmm. like there's two rivers that go uh with a seven mile portage in the middle but uh people used to take those two rivers you know all the time to just skip uh, instead of going around the whole top of michigan they would just go like up the ossable and then down the manistee and um and then all manner of different rivers would take you to different places. And everybody had that, like, just knowledge in their head. And I just think that's crazy. Um, 
I completely agree. I mean, I, uh, I'm reading a book called, I think it's just called The Frontiersman, and it's about a couple different things, It's but it covers uh, Simon Kenton in depth. And um, he, he's a, considered kind of an unsung underground hero to a lot of people who only think about Daniel Boone, mm-hmm. but there is, you know, enough information of Simon Kenton to, to know his story. But um, I was just reading uh, a piece of that book this morning and to what you were just talking about, he's uh, getting in touch with a, a group of guys that he was going to go on an expedition with that was just going to be more so like a hunting season where they just hunted and trapped and gathered their, their furs like they did to be able to then go and trade and sell in the spring. And um, he went and did this particular, um, I think it was like a one or two month long expedition, like a hunting, just trapping expedition. And from doing it one time, he knew exactly how to get this group of guys right back to the same camp that he had helped, you know, build the year (laughs) before. And so, again, you mentioned how they were able just to kind of maintain so much in their, you know, cognition about uh, place. And, you know, how often is it that you can probably go to a place today um, in your car and maybe you went there once and then you go there a second time, maybe a month or two later and you need to GPS it again? You know, it's pretty common today. (laughs) And I'm guilty of that, too. Right. Do you guys think that has something to do with at the rate of speed that everything moves, including travel that? I would, that it I would has say so. it has like reduced our uh, ability to to perceive things in a you know in a different way like that. I think it's I think it's that, and I also think that there's an aspect um, of a connectiveness that comes from something like hunting and from gathering. And so, like for example, a place you know, if I wanted to take you all to a particular area where I've gotten a lot of morels, that's seven miles off trail. I could find that again because I'd do it every yeah. year because <laughs> there, there was that, you know, purpose and there was, you know, oh, that sycamore really stands out. And I remember just as soon as I crossed that sycamore and I went over that floodplain, there they all were last year. And so I think that there is a big part of that playing into it as well as the actual experiences that took place um, with those people at that time that helped them remember it and can uh, retain more of that information. But it's still, I guess, just because we're not a product of that anymore, it still just seems like we've de-evolved yeah. <laughs> in mm-hmm. such a way uh, from that. And you really think about it and you're like, I know, like for me personally, I would like to challenge myself to, to, to try to find a way to get back a little bit closer to that way of life um, than the other. And I think I do in, in many ways, but and in some ways too, it's kind of impossible to to get that back mm. because everything is since that period of time, so much gr- uh, ground has been developed, and yep. you know our system is kind of designed to where you you can't get lost even if you want to. So I'd like to get lost you know, for a couple uh, of years. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, uh, back to Daniel Boone for a second. You know, you live in Kentucky. One of the things I found funny in that uh, that biography was that he left Kentucky because it was getting a little too crowded and there was uh, yeah. 200,000 people in yeah, all, yeah, all of Kentucky. But, it, but, but, but I'm saying... Of, but, yeah, no, I, I, I get exactly what you mean, but, you know, but also think about, um, think about going there 
and it only being you and the odd chance, which at times was a high chance um, of any one particular Native American tribe, you know, occupying that area for a hunting camp, sugaring camp, what have you. Um, and he would be out there for so long surveying and, you know, he would be in these incredibly, you know, treacherous, steep ravine type of areas, you know, surveying out parcels of, of property. And so, yeah, I mean, I can be kind of a recluse, you know, to the point where, you know, I might go a half a day, maybe a day without like talking to anybody. Uh, if I'm like out backpacking or something, and then maybe the next morning I have a three hour foraging class with 30 people <laughs> and I have to kind of like switch that, that, you know, thing on where I'm like, okay, you got to be yourself, but also a person who can like, who wants to talk and who wants to kind of communicate and be the way that you are about this material. Uh, and that can be challenging. So I kind of get what Boone would say. Uh, or whenever he was kind of famously quoted of saying that, but also too, he knew that he was responsible for that, you know, cause he, his whole deal was getting people to come out there to settle. Right. And so when he finally got his wish, he kind of regretted it. And mm. unfortunately in some ways he, uh, well, you know, he just made a lot of terrible decisions business wise and trusting wise. <laughs> uh, he was really naive in some ways. And it's unfortunate that, you know, to call someone naive because they wanted to take a man for their word would be considered mm -hmm. naive, but it was at times and still is. But, you know, he also kind of this made Missouri his home at the last part of his life because he ended up doing all this work to get Kentucky settled and he did it. And then he had nothing to call his yeah. own. So. Yeah, that's a, that's a major bummer. Um, <laughs> I could, I could not imagine, <laughs> I could not imagine, um, having that experience and um to actually speak back to what you're saying a minute ago though um, about the privilege we all have i did want to mention that i have a yearly um thing i like to read one horrible arctic exploration gone oh. wrong every winter oh um, what'd you what'd and, you read uh, i mean last winter i read a couple of them but like, which one this year i think what, what'd you do? uh i read uh madhouse at the end of the earth um and that was a, that was the um, Antarctica. Okay. So the uh, the Belgica, they went down there, and everybody went batshit crazy. <laughs> and uh, and um, and then I really uh, I reread Endurance, which I've read like three or four times because it's such an amazing book. That was the ship, uh, right? The Endurance that got the, lost. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And uh, and then I think I read also. Uh, yeah, I can't remember the name of it, but was it Buddy Levy, the something in ice or something? Uh, oh, Labyrinth of Ice. I read yeah, that Labyrinth. A few years, uh, oh, yeah, I read that. I read that a few years ago. Clay, yeah. I read that in the middle of winter, in the dead of winter, in the coldest depths, and the whole time I'm thinking as like just outside doing like one little thing, thinking about those guys and just how tough and crazy they were to even be out there, but. People yeah. were so much more hardy back then. <laughs> it's we, ridiculous. Like, I'm like, I'm freaking soft. These dudes, <laughs> the, the stuff they went through and struggled and just the constant cold. It was insane. Yeah. Yeah. I do that myself. I, I do a lot of intentional seasonal 
reading. Uh, uh. I don't typically go the exact genre that you go, Clay. I usually <laughs> go more. <laughs> I, I, I tend to stick more with like my, my winter reading. It's kind of, you know, Inuit studies. So like Inuit uh. people's books. I do mm. a lot of that. And then I have my big classic library of uh, the Dick Prinicky journals. Oh, I love mm. him. I love him. Such yeah, a great so, dude. Do you, yeah, so you I get more of, I, I, I go more down like the inspiration route because having <laughs> said that, we have a lot more mild winter here yeah, than yeah. up there. Uh, so you're probably more depressed than me when it comes to the, the lull of winter. And, oh, uh, I'm not depressed at all. I love winter. I love winter. Oh, okay. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I really love, like, uh, I just posted today to my Instagram story that, uh, <laughs> that, uh, uh, Will Ferrell singing, I don't care. I love it. And it says, it says, oh, okay. when, when, when people say they don't like uh, winter, my response. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, I, and, I do. I, I do love winter as well, man. I, I wish that we would get more snow regularly, um, uh, but I, yeah. I do love it. Um, but you guys, you both got to read about um, what I'm going to try to read this uh, coming year is Ada Blackjack, who was a uh, Native woman who got stranded on, um, I believe, Wrangell Island, maybe. She was there for... With the mammoths? Entire... Yeah, 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 same island. Um, <laughs> I, 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 I believe Ada Blackjack was there. Everybody else died around her. And she was the only one who left, and she stayed there for a year by herself. Was she the bush pilot? Nope, nope. Who was the famous Inuit bush pilot that, like, got stranded somewhere? I don't know. Oh, man. I I don't know. Ada Ada Black, um, this is, like, back in the, I want to say, like, late 1800s, early 1900s. Ada Blackjack gets stuck on this island, uh, stays there for a year, total, total badass, feeds herself the whole time. Every like she finally gets rescued and she's and and you know she's totally fine. Yeah, they have. I mean, in my opinion, they have you know some of the most incredible strategies for procuring food. Mm-hmm. Um, just like you said, total badasses. I mean, they yeah. truly are. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Um, the one book that I read last year that uh, I can't remember the name of it. But it's like it's an exploration in the Arctic. They end up going to um, like basically being stranded on. I think they did go to Wrangell Island as well. And um, the one thing that stuck out to me was this image that the writer had portrayed of like or, or people's journals had portrayed of these in, these Inuit children playing outside. And like it was like just life to them. But me, in the meantime, all these other people are like on a survival trip. You know, they're like, they're trying to get out of this disaster that they've gotten themselves into. Meanwhile, there's these toddlers that that is their <laughs> that is their life, and they're literally playing. You know? Yeah, and and that is you know the, those are some of the things that I find the most interesting. Like so, like Gene Briggs, you know, Never in Anger. It's like a book like that where you where it goes over a lot of like the actual like you know, family, like structure and how it's, how children interact with the parents and then how the parents treat their children. Uh, and yeah, I mean, you know, a lot of, you'll, you'll read anthropologists talking about all the hardships and then they'll discuss that, you know, they left the igloo for, you know, five minutes to watch the kids that have been outside for three hours, you know, sledding. And so, <laughs> you know, it, it really isn't incredible. And we were talking about a minute ago how, you know, today, 
as human beings we're, we're you know at least from the western world we're, we're so soft you know and uh, you know, with my two-year-old, if he, we were outside uh, this week when it was really cold in the twenties. So not, you know, freezing or anything, or not, you know, not below freezing, I should say, but, uh, you know, I was like, keep your hat on, you know, like it's just instinctual to be like, you know, like that. And of course they were covered up in a lot of times in incredibly hardy seal, you know, tightly woven clothing to where they were effectively waterproof. Um, but still, I mean, yeah, we're, we've, we've come a long way. Um, yeah. 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 Um, I, I was actually listening to a, um, hardcore history podcast today and um, it was about, it, yeah, Dan Carlin. And it was about the, um, it's his latest episode. It's the, uh, twilight of the Aesir or the end of the Viking age in the, um, and where Christianity took over, but he had this whole little mini section about, um, like how everybody says that the Polynesian Islanders were like way better at navigating. But um, the one thing that always gets left out is that the Vikings were navigating seas that were far less predictable and also with like uh, subarctic conditions most right. of the time. So they're, they're sailing around in the, in the open ocean, just like the Polynesian Islanders, but they're um, I, I guess there's these things called rogue waves that um, will just like come out of nowhere and, hmm. and, and they just uh, proved that they're real, like not that long ago. Like scientists actually like proved that they were, they're not just like a fantasy that, that sailors made up, you know? Um, and <clears throat> so these rogue waves, like they would have these people going to Iceland. There was like 35 ships that went to Iceland and only like nine of them made it in one season because of these rogue waves. Wow. Um, yeah, and just think, just think about that, like how hardy people were. They're, um, you know, we we today were like, ah, oh, I want to go on like a vacation, or, or you know, you want to move somewhere, you just like get your U-Haul and drive it, you know. And they're like, they're like, I want, I want to move, so let's go on this uh, open ship for two to six weeks. Yeah, <laughs> and, yeah, and yeah. hope we make it. Yeah, when you mentioned the Polynesians, you know, I thought about like Wade Davis's book, The Wayfinders. And uh, man, it's it's incredible to think about the again those strategies that they employed to do to navigate like that. I mean, effectively monks, you know, <laughs> in the way that they had to operate. It's it's pretty incredible. And well, yeah, like you said, you get the U-Haul, you put in the GPS, you know, <laughs> you have your Starbucks, and you're yeah. you're you're there. So yeah, soft. Yeah. So, um, speaking of soft, uh, no, not, not speaking of soft. Um, so George, you, um, you have a book coming out next year. You wrote a book and, uh, I wanted to give you like some, some space to talk about your foraging book that you've written and that is coming out next year. Tell us about it. Yeah. Thanks Clay. Um, yeah. So I worked with the university City Press of Kentucky and come up with a book and it's called Forging Kentucky, an introduction to edible plants, fungi, and tree crops at the Southeast. Um, and it'll be coming out April 2nd of 2024. Um, and as far as the actual book goes, I wanted to be able to give Kentucky an actual book dedicated to the wild edibles here, uh, not in an attempt to try to cover all of the species, because that would just be really exhaustive and uh, not really even necessary thanks to Sam Thayer's new field guide that just came out. Um, mm -hmm. 
but I wanted to do something a little bit different uh, than what I have on my shelves and, you know, just also, again, something to be able to provide to the local community here. Um, and so it covers, you know, uh, it's broken up into three different parts. You have the herbaceous plants, you have fungi, and then you have the woody plants. And so that also would be able to give, you know, a beginning to novice forager, uh, a general foraging you know, aspect as opposed to just becoming a plant person or just becoming a mushroom person, which is a dividing force heavily in the foraging community today. And it's fine that that is how it is. But um, I know that whenever I got into foraging around 2010, um, that um, <clears throat> I, I tended to kind of only have one resource for one thing at a time. And I, mm -hmm. you know, kind of always wanted to be able to provide something over the last five or six years that allowed the the beginner to be able to kind of have all that under one cover to be able to take out in the field. Because if you're out looking for chanterelles or mataki mushroom, and then also come across any one particular, you know, nut or fruit or uh, herbaceous plant to be able to also ID that at the same time at the field. So that was the purpose. And so far, um, as far as, um, you know, with it not being out yet, the, the peer, uh, peer readers and what have you, um, it's gotten a good response and I hope that it can help people and bring them closer to Kentucky. Uh, and for people in the Southeast, it's also incredibly relevant and as important and every species covered uh, will also, you know, be accessible in most of the Southeast, if not all of it. So. That's awesome. I, yeah, I'm very excited. <laughs> so George, uh, before we go, then, can you tell people where to find you, find your classes, and then find your book when it comes out? Yeah, so on um, Facebook and on Instagram, uh, the handle is just The Hungry Forager. Um, and then my website's thehungryforager.com. And as far as workshops go, uh, those start up typically in April. Uh, my season starts in April and ends usually at the end of October, if not November. And uh, all of those are uh, accessible to be booked through my website. And the book will be available again in April um, of 2024. At my website, you can get them directly from me. And you can also get them from my publisher's website, which is universitypresskentucky.com. Awesome. George, I just want to say, man, it's an honor to have you on the podcast. And um, I think that you are so much more knowledgeable than most people know. And I think that there's like this um, thing happening in the foraging world where there's like a lot of, a, a lot of like um, fakies out there, you know, like there's like a lot of guys who are um, harvesting diet Pepsis at the store and then um, posting about trees uh, on their social media. And, um, you are the real deal. I really truly believe that you are the real deal. And I really appreciate you for that. And uh, I just want to say, like, I love, I love your stuff, man. And I, and I really hope that you get a lot of success from it. Well, I really appreciate that. That is very sweet, Clay. And I feel the same towards you. So thank you so much for that. All right, man. Well, thanks for coming. Glad to talk to you. Yeah. Yep. Thanks so much, guys.
once again, thank you so much for listening to the Publicly Challenged podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, please subscribe on whatever platform it is you're listening to. Also, if you could leave a review, that would help us out. And you can check us out on Instagram or at publiclychallenged.com. And once again, thank you so much for listening to the show. <laughs>